So if you have a copy of your Bible in front of you, I'd ask that you turn to James 1. Uh, We're going to look at the first four verses in Scripture this morning. Um, I've titled this The Joy of Pain. Um, And as many of you know, I lost my full-time employment recently, and it's it's, uh, some of the things that were said about me um, prior and leading up to my departure were deeply hurtful. And yet, uh, I've had to confront that in comparison to James 1, and I've had to struggle and wrestle with what joy really means. So the question that I've been asking is, do I need to be happy always, or is there a time and a place for sorrow? Uh, James 1, 1 through 4 gave me the answer, and I want to share with you that text this morning. And so I'd ask that, uh, out of reverence to the Lord, that we stand together and we'll read the first four verses. And then we'll dive into the text and consider the, the, uh, the passage together. So James 1, 1 through 4, beginning in, in verse 1, we read, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes of the dispersion, greetings. Verse 2, counting it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, For you know that this testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Thank you. So I find it it helpful when we're starting a a book of scripture or a new passage to consider some of the history and the context that we find ourselves in. So the book of James, we know, was written sometime before 69 AD. Um, there's a number of James's ma- mentioned in Scripture, but there's really only two that potentially could have written it. That'd be James, the disciple of Christ, and then James, the half brother of Jesus. We know that in Acts 12, James, the son of Zebedee, which would have been the disciple of Christ, was killed by Agrippa with a sword. So this really leaves us with James, the half brother of Jesus, as our author. James, we know, is mentioned a couple times in, in Scripture, and initially he didn't believe in Christ. See in Mark 3, 21 through 35, that Jesus' family came to Jesus trying to take him away from the crowd because they thought he was mad. And we also see in John 7, 5, a mention of Jesus' brother not having believed in him. However, like Paul, James is saved at some point after Christ's resurrection by the grace of God. And he acknowledges his position in verse 1 in comparing Christ in the salutation. He says that he's a, quote, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. What's interesting about the salutation is that he could have distinguished himself and set himself above the reader. He was, after all, a son of the same mother that bore our Lord and Savior. He could have noted that he grew up beside Jesus. These are all true facts, but instead he humbles himself and, as the Greek translates, into a a bondservant or a slave. We know that bondservants at the time had no claim to power, they didn't own property, and they had no rights. They were at the mercy of their master. and They did as the master willed. And that's a stark contrast to James's earthly relationship with Jesus. But James chose to make clear to the reader his position in comparison to Christ. James, a servant to his master and Lord, Jesus Christ. It's a powerful statement, and it shows a transformation that's taken place in this man's life. And it's the same type of transformation that needs to take place in our own lives. Romans 6.22 confirms this as Paul writes, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. We no longer belong to this world. Rather, we are 
we follow the sovereign authority of Jesus Christ in whom we've been ransomed through salvation. Having been bought with a price, the death of our Savior, we obey and follow willingly after Christ and his will for our life. James ultimately becomes a prominent leader in the Jerusalem church. He's among the leaders in Acts 15 that we read about who pushed for the gospel to go out to the Gentiles and not just to the Jews. So, why was the book written and why should we care? James, at this point, had witnessed the persecution of the Jerusalem church. The church had been scattered, but nevertheless, there were still messages going back and forth between the different communities. And James would have likely received word of not only the physical suffering that was ongoing, but also some of the false preaching that was taking hold within the churches in Asia Minor and also the Middle East. And one of the percolating questions that would have been circulating was, how could someone tell a true believer apart from someone who is a false believer in the church? What hope could James offer to the church? And so James pens this letter that we have in front of us today. And he's going to argue passionately throughout his letter that a true brother or sister in the faith endures. In fact, James 2.18, he pens, Show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. And this is an absolutely central and driving home theme of James. James is going to insist throughout this book that a true Christian will endure, that we'll be able to tell who's in the body and who's out by the actions that they take, and most particularly in the midst of a difficult trial. Their works will ultimately reflect their confidence in the Lord's sovereignty in their lives. And while those who are not a part of the faith will ultimately leave the congregation when trials hit hard enough, trials within the congregation itself as us believers will refine, sharpen, and purify. And just in case you're wondering, James is not alone in pushing that there is joy in trials. We see this theme is reverberated throughout the passages of Scripture. Peter in 1 Peter 4.12 pens, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. We also read Paul in Romans 5, 3 through 5, writing, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering producing endurance, and endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And uh, as if scripture was concerned that we might view the apostle words as just merely writings, they also included Acts 16, 16 through 25, which talks about Paul and Silas specifically being beaten and then bound and thrown into prison. And there they sang hymns of praise. These men that are writing these words to us didn't just let the letters sit on a page they actually lived and breathed each of the words that were spoken here therefore despite this piece of scripture being written roughly nearly 2,000 years before us they're still just as important to us today so I'd like to examine three truths that are found between verses 2 and 4 in, in James 1 firstly we're going to see the command of trials that's found in verse 2 secondly I'd like to examine the purpose of trials found in verse 3 and then thirdly, I'd like to examine the effects of trials on us found in verse 4. And so with these three points in mind, let's go to the first one, which is the command in trials. Going back to James 1, we read, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. 
Firstly, we need to notice the word count. It's an imperative, and this is important to us because it's also called to action. James is calling each of us to find joy in the face of trials that we will face. Notice that he doesn't say if, he doesn't say may, perhaps. Instead, he uses when we face trials. And Jesus illustrates this very fact in Matthew 7, 24 through 27, where he's talking about believers and unbelievers both facing trials and then the outcome of that, where one, in their case, the trials came and their house stood firm, and in the other case, in the unbeliever, the house fell flat. For honest, though, trials hurt. And whether it's the loss of full-time employment, a loved one deeply hurting you with their actions, whether intentionally or unintentionally, a physical sickness, the death of someone that you knew, or a person at school or at work that is bothering you by one means or another. James was a human. He recognized this emotion that we experience, and yet he's still asking us to count it all as joy. So what is joy? Should we smile and be upbeat regardless how deeply we're hurting? Let's look at the couple areas in Scripture. Job lost everything, and he tore his robes and wept. David in 2 Samuel was told that his son would die, and he fasted and mourned publicly. So the question is, were they sinning? Taking this further, John eleven thirty five, we're presented with the shortest verse in the Bible, showing Jesus' reaction to when he came to the tomb of his friend Lazarus, where it said, Jesus wept. And these were not tears of joy, and neither were the two previous examples very joyous situations. Job had taken some, uh, t- been taken from someone who was incredibly wealthy to losing, in today's modern vernacular, his corporation, any means of making uh, wealth, his children. Uh, and in the meantime, his wife and his friends were not exactly encouraging. Rather, they told him to curse God and die. It's deep pain there. And, and David is told his son is going to die as a result of his sin. And can you imagine going to a doctor and being told your son or daughter is going to die? That's, that's terrible news. So where's the joy? I think our culture has mixed happiness and joy to mean one and the same. Happiness can be fleeting. It's an emotion. Meanwhile, joy is mentioned over 200 times in the Bible. Therefore, it's important that we understand this word. Our joy as Christians is something different than what the culture has deemed. It has to be or else David, Job, and even the Lord Jesus himself sinned for showing an emotion other than happiness. Further, it would contradict Matthew 5, which says, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, and blessed are those who mourn. So it's not necessarily an emotion that we're used to. Our joy needs to persist in the face of weakness, pain, and even death. Happiness, on the flip side, comes from the Latin word fortuna, which became our word fortune. As my circumstances improve, so too does my fortuna or happiness, and as things go poorly, happiness decreases. Happiness is entirely dependent on the circumstance. Jonathan Edwards argues that in order to feel joy, we must understand that true religion is in great parts consists of holy affections. Therefore, joy is not an emotion on top of an emotion. Rather, it's a feeling on top of fact, an emotional response to what I know to be true of God. Our joy must start with understanding who we were before Christ. Romans 3, 10, 11 says that no one's righteous, no one not one, no one seeks to understand, no one seeks after God. It's, it recognizes that we as humans are sinful, according to Romans 3.23, and not able to keep even one of the Ten Commandments. 
But by understanding our condition in comparison to the holiness that Christ demands, we come face to face with the reality of who we are. And as a just God, our sin demands a payment. And that payment, according to Romans 6.23, is death. It's an incredibly dire situation that we find ourselves in. But by understanding who we are and the path that we're heading, then we can begin to experience the joy as we consider Christ. He's the God-man. He's fully God. He was fully man. He was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life. He did not sin. And he was predestined to pay the ultimate price for the very sinner who did not seek God and actively chose to rebel against his commands. Christ's crucifixion on the cross was the opportunity for God to rain down the wrath that was due on me, on his son. This was the sacrifice that was required to cover my sins, and the soldier stabbing Christ in his burial is proof that he died, but his resurrection is where our joy begins. It proves that he wasn't just a man, but rather the fulfillment of the prophecies proves that the man Jesus was in fact our Lord and Savior. His resurrection gives us hope to an eternity and glory. As Hebrews 14, or 4, 14 through 16 states, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way that we are, yet was without sin. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The confidence that we have in our salvation and the thankfulness of recognizing who we were and yet who we would become is where our joy is found. Therefore, what James is calling us to do is to shift our thinking. When he says to count it all joy, he's calling us to find contentment in the goodness of our Lord. Rather than blaming God for the trial and saying, Lord, I was following you. Why am I going through this? Why are you bringing this into my life? We must instead find confidence in the Lord. Obedience to Christ does not mean that we avoid trials. In fact, it's not an elective that we can choose or avoid. It's a prerequisite that both believers and unbelievers, hard times are going to come upon us. The difference between the believer and the unbeliever is how we respond to something going poorly in our own lives. For the unbeliever, they can't find joy as we're describing today because they don't know the mercies of our Lord and Savior. It's not to say that they can't find happiness. There's a difference. But our joy is long-lasting that surpasses a single event. Meanwhile, as believers, we need to welcome the trial because we know who we serve. Being bitter, grumbling, or complaining about what we're facing requires repentance on our part because it shows a lack of trust about who our Lord truly is. We have a reason to praise in the midst of pain and in the midst of agony. Our joy is different than that of the world's. Ours is found in an unshakable rock, a loving, just, and righteous king who calls us his sons and daughters. His burden is not heavy, and he gives us rest. The righteous died for the unrighteous, and this is the one that we serve. This is the God that we turn to when we face the hardships of life, and when we face trials as a body of believer, it's an opportunity for each of us to be able to build one another up by pointing us back to our hope. But it still doesn't mean that we don't feel pain. Paul states in Romans 12, 5, to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. There's an absolute emotional reaction to a trial, but there's also a radical shift away from how the world views pain. We as believers need to have a quiet confidence that beneath the tears and the agony that God is in control. 
that as the psalmist pens in Psalm 30, weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. Our joy is not a natural optimism, and it's not fake. It doesn't grin because that's what culture has called us to do or have something, some sort of fake smile. Rather, our joy is in the hope that God is sure in his promises. And this is not necessarily a natural mindset for us either. Ultimately, what we're called to do is ask God in the midst of the trial, will I trust him or not? Our faith is being tested and it's a deliberate choice that we must make whether we trust God. It's easy to say that we love and trust our Lord when everything is bright and sunny, but can we still say the same thing when we're not even sure if we'll survive the trial in front of us? James is commanding us to put on a new attitude and to put off the worldly mindset that comes so naturally to us, to endure. He's commanding each of us to trust God and to experience his joy in the midst of the trial that we're facing. Therefore, James goes on. Read back in in James 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes of the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds, Verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And this brings us to our second point, the purpose of trials. Oxford defines steadfastness as being consistent, steady, unwavering, unmoving, and it implies that we can be depended upon. Trials are not always because we have sinned, but they are instead there to push us to be more like Christ. Spurgeon stated the following. He says, Do not soar over your trials. Do not look upon them as misfortunes and calamities. They are black vessels, but they are loaded with gold. Your choicest mercies come to you disguised as your sharpest trials. Welcome them. Do not soar over them, but rejoice in them. Endure everything. Suffer everything that God sends you. Bathe yourself in this rough sea till by God's blessing it has strengthened you and cleansed you, for to that end he sends it, that it may be perfect, that it may perfect you by discipline, educating all your spiritual facilities, and bringing out of your, uh, out of your powers for his glory. It's quite a claim. However, Spurgeon, like James, understood that God was sovereign over every trial, and he ran towards the trial and embraced them because of the blessings that would be received. God knows the trial that you're facing in your life. It's not taken him by surprise, and he's certainly not scrambling to make the best out of a poor situation that you've just encountered. Our God's omnipotent. Even the random events of our life that we view as chance, according to Proverbs 16.33, he controls. He's ordained every day of your life, according to Psalm 139.16. Therefore, the question that we should have is, why should we worry? If God is truly sovereign, then we should not be afraid or worry. Some would argue that events such as natural disasters, uh, birth defects, and other extremes of evil in this world are not in God's control. And yet this statement goes even against Exodus 4.11, which says, Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Read later on in James 1, if we get a chance at some point down the road, that that God is not responsible for sin. Uh, But he is entirely sovereign over every event. Stating that God is only partially sovereign robs us of being able to take comfort in the Lord in every situation and to find joy. 
It begs the question as to what situations we can trust that God controls and what situations we're now on our own. Further, to state that God is not sovereign over the trials in our life denies that he's purposely working through those trials to increase our faith in him. And this, again, robs God of his glory. Trials may not be easy, and frankly, they may not even end during our lifetime. Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 2.12 a thorn that had tormented him, and he asked three times for the Lord to remove it, and the response that he ultimately received was, my grace is sufficient for you, my power is perfected in your weakness. Thinking about my own personal life, I enjoy uh, triathlons, I enjoy trail running, uh, and last year Laura and I were invited to run a 25 kilometer on, on the Great Wall of China um, with my brother and sister-in-law, and it was, it was by far at that point the farthest distance that I'd run. Um, so Laura and I, we trained and we increased distances and we did different activities, uh, all with the goal of trying to compete for the race. Day of the race was absolutely gorgeous. Sky was clear, weather was warm. Uh, and we started out with a large group with vigor and it was a challenge. We climbed something like 10,000 steps, gained over a kilometer in elevation. Uh, and by the time we were done, my knees hurt, my legs hurt, uh, my lungs hurt, uh, but we had endured and we'd survived the test. Um, in the same light, James is talking about our faith in a similar manner. We don't sit nonchalantly on the sidelines waiting for trials to happen to us. We prepare by reading the word, by spending time in prayer, by fellowshipping with other believers, by encouraging one another. And then, then as we face trials, we're reminded of the truths that we've read in scripture. We endure and our faith becomes stronger to face the next trial. And when we face a similar adversary, we know that we can endure this test because we've been here before. And as we endure with joy, we bring glory to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as we go through trials, we should shift our mindset to find comfort and joy. We should understand that God is using this trial to strengthen us and that uh, enable us to endure. And finally, point three, we see the effects of trials in verse four. So starting in verse two, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your, faithful, uh, of your faith produces steadfastness. And verse four, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Notice the word let in verse four. Uh, for some, they would view this as an opportunity to argue that we're supposed to be passive in trials, that we're simply to submit to God. However, Submission to God does not mean that we should be earnestly, should not be earnestly praying for wisdom in that trial and ultimately that we would trust God even when we're deeply hurting. Going back to Paul in 2 Corinthians, he prayed three times earnestly and he stopped praying when God told him that my grace is sufficient for you. Being submissive to God does not necessarily that we don't take steps to try to remedy the problem. If the trial is a loss of a job, we go and find another job. If the trial is an illness, it's right to not only pray, but also to seek medical attention. If it's a difficult circumstance, it's not necessarily wrong either to try to change that circumstance. Submission is an attitude towards God where we don't defiantly shake our fist in his face and tell him that he has no right to do this to us. We're not submitting to him if we ignore him and take matters into our own hands apart from prayer and faith. One of the best examples, perhaps, of submission in the Bible is Job. After God had afflicted him, his response, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. 
James says, let steadfastness have its full effect, implying that this does not happen overnight. Rather, maturity of a believer takes time. God's goal in this trial is that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But again, this does not mean that you can arrive at a state of sinless perfection or maturity in this life. Rather, the idea is that you will be spiritually mature, well-equipped for the purpose that God created you. The fruit of the Spirit found in Galatians 5, 23, love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, are supposed to be evident in our daily lives. Likewise, the word complete does not refer to an end, but rather to the incremental growth of our character as more areas of our life are affected and shaped into the image of God, we come closer to his perfection and being complete. Therefore, my hope and prayer is, is twofold this morning as I wrap up. One, for those of you who believe that the world has more to offer than my Lord and Savior can, I pray that you would submit your life to Christ, that you would repent of your unbelief and that you'd find joy that I'm still able to cling to despite the circumstances that affect me from a day to day. And secondly, for the brothers and sisters in faith that are seated here this morning, I, I hope that you've been both encouraged and challenged in your faith as I have been over the last few weeks as I've studied this passage. We all struggle with human nature, but I pray that each of us would actively find joy in recognizing who our God and Savior is and what he does for us in our daily life. And with that in mind, let's, uh, let's close in prayer. Our Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you again. I realize that joy is not necessarily something that comes easily to each of us, and particularly to me. It's a lot easier to be grumpy and to be discontent about my situation than to find peace and comfort in you. And yet you've commanded us to do exactly that. I pray that I would take peace and I would find joy regardless of the circumstance in you. And that for each of us here, Lord, that we would each find hope in the passages of scripture that we read, in the fellow believers that we encounter on a day-by-day -day basis, and in the prayers that we offer up to you. Thank you for your son, for his death, for his burial, and for his resurrection, and for the ultimate sacrifice that I could not make. Thank you so much for loving us and for the grace that you provide to me day in and day out. It's in your son's name that we give thanks. Amen.